So, we'll turn from those things to the hope of salvation, which I think is something good for us to think about in, uh, in light of all that. And last week, obviously, we talked about the way of salvation and the new birth and all those things connected with the, the onset or the beginning of salvation, if you will. And then today, I think let's continue with, uh, first of all, sanctification and the believer's walk, because both of these have largely to do with our day-to-day -day experience as Christians. If, if the, the other is what happens at the point of salvation when we first begin to trust Christ, these are the things that are ongoing throughout our Christian lives. So let's read at least the first section there of sanctification. We believe that sanctification is the process by which, according to the will of God, we are made partakers of His holiness. Now, let's pause there for a second. When it says we are made partakers of His holiness, what's the difference between sanctification and justification? Okay. Sure. Sure. Uh, justification is kind of like the point when you're born, to continue Paul's analogy, and sanctification is the process of maturity where hopefully everyone is moving from being an infant to a toddler to a teenager to an adult. And uh, just like we grow in our physical lives, there should also be progress in our spiritual lives. Uh, when it says we are made partakers of His holiness, obviously in justification, God looks at us in light of Christ and says, this person is declared holy. But we know that the reality is, <coughs> excuse me, the reality is that that's not necessarily our, uh, yeah, our reality. Turn over to Romans uh, 6, for example. What's that? Yeah, yeah. But starting in Romans 6, should we continue in sin so that grace may increase, may it never be? How shall we who died to sin still live in it? Or do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus have been baptized into his death? Therefore we have been buried with him through baptism into death, so that as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have become united with him in the likeness of his death, Certainly we shall also be in the likeness of his resurrection, knowing this, that our old self was crucified with him in order that our body of sin might be done away with so that we would no longer be slaves to sin, for he who has died is freed from sin. That's talking about what happens at the point of salvation. You were enslaved to sin, you were dead in sin, now you have new life. Then in chapter 6 and verse 8, Paul moves on and says, Now if we have died with Christ... We believe that we shall also live with him, knowing that Christ, having been raised from the dead, is never to die again. Death no longer is master over him. For the death that he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life that he lives, he lives to God. Even so, consider yourselves to be dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. And those verses are a mix of both our present and our future reality, right? The we shall live with him, there's a sense in which that's true right now. 
There's also a sense in which it's not fully realized until we're in God's presence. And so what does that look like on a day-to-day basis? Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body so that you obey its lusts, and do not go on presenting the members of your body to sin as instruments of unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those alive from the dead and your members as instruments of righteousness to God. For sin shall not be master over you, for you are not under law, but under grace. This is important with the idea of uh, presenting the members of your body as instruments of unrighteousness or as righteousness, because a lot of times there are people who sort of say, if I didn't have a physical body, I wouldn't sin. And that is only true insofar as the physical body is the means by which we sin. But it's not the fact that we have a physical body that's the reason that we sin. It's rather the fact that what's inside comes out. That's what Jesus said, right? Out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. If your hearts are filled with all unrighteousness, then out of your mouth and hands and everything else comes unrighteousness. This is important, particularly tying back to the doctrine of Christ. If flesh is the problem in terms of physical existence, how can we say that Jesus was without sin? The difference is that he was perfect within as he is working to make us as well. And so, then Paul has this idea about law, not under law, but under grace. What then shall we sin because we are not under law, but under grace? May it never be. And this develops his argument earlier in the book where he basically said, God gave the law, it showed the Israelites they couldn't keep it. If they had kept it, they would have been righteous in God's sight, but they all fell short of it. And so God showed grace to us by saving us through Christ's work, not our own. Do you not know when you present yourselves to someone as slaves for obedience, you are slaves of the one whom you obey, either of sin resulting in death or of obedience resulting in righteousness? But thanks be to God that though you were slaves of sin, you became obedient from the heart to that form of teaching to which you were committed, and having been freed from sin, you became slaves of righteousness. I speak in human terms because of the weakness of your flesh, for just as you presented your members as slaves to impurity and to lawlessness, resulting in further lawlessness, so now present your members as slaves to righteousness, resulting in sanctification. Now, Uh, For when you were slaves of sin, you were free in regard to righteousness. Therefore, what benefit were you deriving from things of which you are now ashamed? For the outcome of those things is death. But now, having been freed of sin and enslaved to God, you derived your benefit, resulting in sanctification, and the outcome, eternal life. For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Note that Paul seems to keep switching back and forth between past tense and present tense. We see this as well in the contrast between Colossians and Ephesians. So here's the question. Were we slaves to sin or are we slaves to sin? Positionally, we were. Experientially, our day-to-day life, there's an extent to which we are. uh, And that's, and and so this this is the tension because Um, in Ephesians. Well, let's drop down to Romans before we go to Ephesians. Chapter 7, as as Jonathan pointed out. Go down to verse uh, 14 of Romans 7. For we know the law is spiritual, but I am of flesh, sold into bondage to sin. For what I am doing I do not understand, for I am not practicing what I would like to do, but I am doing the very thing that I hate. But if I do the thing I do not want to do, I agree with the law, confessing the law is good. 
So now no longer am I the one doing it, but sin which dwells in me. For I know that nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh, for the willing is present in me, but the doing of the good is not. For the good that I want, I do not do, but I practice the very evil I do not want. But if I am doing the very thing I do not want, I am no longer the one doing it, but sin which dwells in me. I find then the principle that evil is present in me, the one who wants to do good. For I joyfully concur with the law of God in the inner man, but I see a different law in the members of my body, waging war against the law of my mind and making me prisoner of the law of sin, which is in my members. Wretched man that I am, who will set me free from the body of this death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So on the one hand, I myself with my mind am serving the law of God, but on the other with my flesh, the law of sin. Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus, for the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set you free by, from the law of sin and death. Is Paul talking about before salvation or after salvation at the end of the chapter? Okay. How many of you think before? 7, 14 to 25, over 14 to 23, if you will. So here's the tension. If Paul is really saved, how could he describe his Christian life in this way? Because we know the reality is that he's righteous in Christ. But at the same time, the reality is we still sin. And then you tie it into something like 1 John, and 1 John says you can't practice sin because the one who practices sin is not of God. And then um, turn over to Ephesians 4. Right. Right, right. Uh, go to Ephesians 4. Uh, verse 20. It says, But you did not learn Christ in this way, in the way of the Gentiles, emptiness, ignorance, futility, if indeed you have heard him and been taught in him, just as truth is in Jesus, that in reference to your former manner of life, you lay aside the old self, which is being corrupted in accordance with the lusts of deceit, and that you be renewed in the spirit of your mind and put on the new self, which in the likeness of God has been created in righteousness and holiness of the truth. There's a similar thing in uh, Colossians. I can read it for you if you like. Well, I think if you look at verse 25, it says, laying aside falsehood, speak truth. So that seems to be an ongoing process. So yeah, I would say that, well, again, are we talking about in terms of our position before God, the setting aside of the old self and the, and the fact that we're new creatures in Christ is a one-time act of God. The working out of that in time in our daily experience is an ongoing, is an ongoing process. Colossians, I think, emphasizes the what has already uh, taken place. It says, 
uh, Colossians 3, verse 9, don't lie to one another since you laid aside the old self with its evil practices and have put on the new self. But then it says, who is being renewed to a true knowledge according to the image of the one who created him? So, as those who have been chosen of God, holy and beloved, put on a heart of compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience, and then so on and so forth. So, we sort of lay all these things out. It's not as though God, um, it's not as though we're a cup and God pours in a certain measure of righteousness and that's what we've got and we've got to sort of keep topping it off as we dump some out. That I think would more align more closely with the, with the Catholic perspective of righteousness that it is an infusion, like a blood infusion kind of a thing. Instead, what we see in Romans and in Ephesians and Colossians is the reality that God has said, in me you are a new creature. The old is dead. All things are made new. And yet there's also that tension of the practical experience of our day-to-day lives that we still have this ongoing battle against sin. So that's where, going back to our statement of faith, we are made partakers of his holiness, that it is a progressive work. And when I say progressive, just so we're clear on it, the Christian life is like this. The Christian life is not like this. Uh, for example, um, So this would be an understanding called progressive sanctification. And this would be an understanding of, um, you would see terms associated with the second one, like the higher life, what's that? Second work of grace, second blessing, those sorts of things. So uh, the song that says, I'm pressing on the upward way, new heights I'm gaining every day. And then it talks a little bit later about a higher plane that I have found. That's expressing the Wesleyan idea of sanctification that you get saved and then you go for a certain period of time and then there's a point of crisis at which you surrender your life and then you reach a point of complete surrender and then from that point on, you no longer sin intentionally. They wouldn't write, come right out and say you never sin because to deny sin entirely is impossible, but they would say you don't sin willingly or intentionally or with malice or that sort of thing. The problem with this is the perspective of Scripture is not, does not allow for an, on, an extended period of time in which there is no desire and no growth whatsoever. Now, everybody can grow at different, at different rates. Some people's rate of growth might look like this, and some people's rate of growth might look like this, and some people's rate of growth might look like this, and then it's going to be ups and downs in the process. But the point is, it can't be flat. And that's the problem with this view, because a further development of it, or a parallel development of it, would be someone like, I believe it's Zane Hodges, who basically said, you can go through your entire life, and the only difference between the Christian and the non-Christian 
is the fact that the Christian prayed a prayer. But aside from that, you'd have no idea this person was a Christian. Does that fit with what the Bible says about having new life in Christ and change and growth and all those sorts of things? No. What needs to be evident in our lives, at least to some degree, for others to know that we are a Christian? Change? Fruit? Yeah, so the fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, all those sorts of things, if there is no fruit of the Spirit, the only reasonable assumption from the perspective of everyone observing us is there's no spiritual life. And so I understand the tension because there's people who say, I feel like there's a struggle, I feel like I'm not making progress. Sometimes it's a fact of really wanting someone to be a Christian. Like we really want to believe that this person is a Christian. But if there's not fruit, I don't think that we can say that they are. And so what's the, what's the biblical balance, the tension between these things? It's that change is progressive. Uh, if looking back at the statement of faith, it's begun in regeneration and that it is carried on in the hearts of believers by the presence and power of the Holy Spirit. I think that's critical because sometimes we have the perspective that that change just happens if I make enough effort. If I try hard enough, everything will be better. But this is the perspective that a guy like Ben Franklin had. He said, I'm going to write out a list of virtues, good things that I should do. And he said, I'm going to work on, for example, I'm going to work on uh, temperance for a week, controlling my temper, not giving myself to excess. What's the problem with that kind of approach if you say, I'm going to focus on one thing and I'm going to make sure I do that one thing right? It's not sustainable. What else? What about everything else? Right. And that's why this is not something that we can accomplish by ourselves. We need the Spirit's power to accomplish it in us. And then it talks, uh, our statement of faith, the sealer and comforter. And then at the end of the paragraph, it says, in the continual use of the appointed means. Um, continual use of the appointed means. This is not a way we talk commonly, but essentially it's saying... Um, how does it happen? And here is emphasized the Word of God, prayer, self-examination, self-denial, and watchfulness. There's a book called The Habits of Grace by, uh, forget his first name, his last name is Mathis. And he emphasizes in that book, uh, and perhaps it would be a helpful book for us to look at down the road, he emphasizes word, prayer, and fellowship as being key means of grace in our lives that help us to accomplish sanctification. So word is the Bible. Prayer is obviously talking to God about what we read in the Bible, what's going on in our lives. Fellowship is, uh, the way that he uses fellowship is sometimes the way that we use the word worship, but it's the gathering together with God's people uh, for mutual encouragement and for worshiping God together. And so I think those three elements are essential because a part from the scripture, how do we know God better? Jesus said, I'm the vine, you're the branches, and unless you dwell in me, you can do nothing, there won't be fruit. And the way that we dwell in God more is through knowing scripture better, not just knowing scripture, but doing scripture. Because it's really easy to know a lot of stuff and then not act on it. And then prayer is obviously important because that expresses our dependence on God and the power of the Holy Spirit to accomplish this work. 
And gathering with one another is important because like Hebrews says, um, don't forsake the assembling of yourselves together and encourage one another all the more as you see the day approaching and keep admonishing one another so that no one has a bitter heart and defile many by that bitter heart. And so there's this ongoing need for relationship. And I think I, I think that this is something where um, different people have said this thing is the key to Christian growth. In other words, people who are running camps tend to say camp is the key to Christian growth, right? People who are teaching at Bible colleges might say going to a Bible college is the key to spiritual growth. People who produce Christian music might say Christian music is the key to spiritual growth. I got something in the mail that said the key to having a vibrant ministry at your church was to get the right bulletins, but, you know, that might be stretching it a bit. Um, my point would be camp is good, Bible colleges are good, um, Christian music can be good, uh, Various group studies can be good. All of these things can be good. But what's essential are the elements that we're talking about here. We have to have the Word of God. We have to have prayer. We have to have fellowship with one another. Because the early church didn't have, they didn't have iPods to listen to music to sustain them during the day. And they were still able to grow while they were sweating in the fields, serving their masters, working in the market, whatever it was that they were doing, they were still able to grow. For that matter, they didn't have the written word of God, every one of them a copy or multiple copies on their person to refer to throughout the day, and they still grew. Obviously, we have the word of God, we should make use of it, but let's just make sure that we don't substitute reading for meditation and application in terms of our study of God's word. Spending time in prayer is also something that's essential, and this I think is something that we all struggle with because our lives are so busy. We have work, we have family, we have school, we have all sorts of things pulling at our attention. So the question is, are we going to take time for prayer? Dedicated time for prayer, sporadic time for prayer as things come up in our lives during the day, and then are we going to gather together because we need that kind of encouragement. And that's where I think the gathering together, worshiping God together, hearing God's word together, but also outside of the set service times interacting with each other is a, is a part of where our spiritual growth is taking place. So, sanctification is progressive. Sanctification is something that must be taking place. It's shown by spiritual fruit. It's accomplished by the work of the Holy Spirit. And there are certain means of grace that are essential to seeing change happen. Any further thoughts on this first paragraph? things that we would want to add, revise, adjust slightly. Okay. All right. Um... Yeah, I think 
I wonder if this is a language issue because I think when they were writing this and said we are made partakers of his holiness in light of the phrase right after it that they're saying that this is something that's constantly happening but English is not good about distinguishing between like something that happened in the past and keeps happening versus something that just happened in the past so I think yeah I think we could probably rephrase that to make it a little more clear we are increasing in holiness, something like that. Is that kind of what you're getting at? Okay. Well, and besides some of the phrases, all of it, crucial. But then, you know what? Looking at the next paragraph, not the jump ahead, but it looks like it's focusing on the pursuit of holiness. Right. Yeah, so let's, uh, let's move on to the next paragraph and then we can come back to it. I think that we would do well potentially to combine these two. I guess one other thing for the first paragraph, I don't know that we need to say the Holy Spirit, the sealer, and the comforter because we've already said that in another place. So we could just say the presence and power of the Holy Spirit. Um, I don't think the word means is bad. Um, but we might want to clarify that and then whether there are three or five or, I mean, there's a lot of people, there's a lot of perspectives on how many means of grace there are. Um, so, all right, so the believers walk. We believe that since the citizenship of the child of God is in heaven, that henceforth he is to walk separately from this present evil world, having no fellowship with the unfruitful works of darkness abstain from every appearance of evil so as not to conform to its character or conduct, whether it be in amusements or habits which defile both mind and body. Yeah, I think um, there's a couple of tensions in this paragraph that I think we should talk about. When it says, walk separately from this present evil world, having no fellowship with the unfruitful works of darkness. Maybe. So, 
there is there is a spectrum of responses I think to the problem of sin in our lives if this is the world bear with me that's a terrible drawing but here's the world and if this is let's just say this is heaven we tend to think we want to be over here and we don't want to be here but here's the question how do I give the gospel to somebody if I have no contact with them so when it says walk separately from the present evil world having no fellowship with unfruitful works of darkness we sometimes look at that and take away as don't talk to people who aren't Christians and I don't think that we can have that approach also sometimes we have the perspective that um, it is primarily about outward action instead of internal motivation that's the main issue now clearly clearly there are things that are sinful regardless of the reason that you're doing them and take an easy one like murder regardless of the reason that you murdered someone it's not okay because God says it's sin right I think that it becomes more difficult when we talk about and I don't really like this word because the way that people phrase it makes it sound like it doesn't matter but what we might call Christian liberties or wisdom issues or, or those sorts of things right discernment so murder is clearly off the table because it's always wrong let's take something like watching a movie is watching a movie always wrong I would say no Yes. Could the same movie be wrong for one person and not wrong for another person? God says don't violate your conscience. There's a great little book on conscience that I read a few months back. Um, yes, yes. And the thing with conscience is we have people whose consciences are hypersensitive and people whose consciences are dull. Very rarely do we fall exactly in the middle that our consciences are perfectly attuned on every single issue. And so all of these things sort of roll into the believer's walk. So for example, someone might come in and they say, I'm a Christian and they want to join the church and they wear blue jeans on Sunday because that's all they've ever done. How would we feel about that? Is that a sin issue? I don't think, I mean, to the extent that your clothes are modest and appropriate, which in itself is a whole another discussion, I don't think that we can say that someone in California is sinning when they wear shorts to church on Sunday. Sure. So, so here's the tension. One, uh, there, was a, there was a period of time where I went through it and I was like, well, my goal should be to dress in a way that people are comfortable so that if they showed up to church, they're not like, why is everybody wearing a suit and tie? And then for a, another point of time, I was at the perspective of, well, 
I should always dress the best that I possibly can dress according to all these other sorts of things. I think that church culture is important because if I start wearing a t-shirt and shorts to church every week, then some of you may start showing up in your PJs. I mean, that's just a practical reality. And so, um, maybe you wouldn't. Maybe it's too ingrained in you not to do that. But getting back to my main point, we tend to look at outward factors more than we try to evaluate inward realities. And part of that is because we can't always see the inward realities, right? I don't know why you're doing things unless I ask you. And you may tell me, and because our hearts are deceitful, you may not be telling me the truth, even unintentionally, about why did I do such and such, which is why it's difficult when your kids do something wrong and are like, why did you do that? I don't know. If they thought about it long enough, we could probably come up with a reason, but sometimes the point is just, you did the thing that was wrong, let's move away from it, and so on. All that to say, when it comes to the believer's walk, we should not measure our holiness only or primarily by wearing the right clothes, listening to the right music, all of these sorts of things. On the other hand, we shouldn't swing to the other extreme and say none of those things matter at all. So, how does that relate to our, our, our connection with the world? Let me give you an illustration. There was a time period when I was involved with people who kept fish, and I was trying to say, how can I use this as an opportunity to witness to them? The club meetings of the group that I was part of was in the banquet hall in the back room of what was essentially a bar. So I had asked myself, is it wrong for me to go to that place? What does the Bible specifically say? The Bible specifically says, I can't be drunk. I can't be ruled by something other than the Spirit. I can't participate in certain activities. Now, if it was in the back room of certain other kinds of establishments, I think it would be an automatic no. I think we could, we could make that assumption. But, in my mind... What is the practical difference between going to an Applebee's and going to the place where this group was meeting? Not a huge amount of difference, to, to a certain extent, in terms of what all they were doing, in terms of the layout, in terms of the tables, all those sorts of things. And depending on your background, that may be something that you're like, I don't know about that. So here was, here was the conclusion that I, that I made. The conclusion that I made was, if I can go and I can maintain a Christian testimony to the people who are there, and that I am not misrepresenting Christ to them or to other believers unnecessarily, that I felt like I could go and have witnessing opportunities to those people. And I did have some. Um, think about what Jesus did. What was the accusation? He's a friend of sinners, he's a profligate, he's a whatever. Why? Because he went to places where sinners were. Now, here's a, different, here's a different attitude. You could have a Christian who says, I'm going to go hang out with lost people, and I want to make them comfortable, so we're all going to drink together, we're going to party together, it's going to be great because I'm going to show them that, I, that I, I am connecting with them. At some point, that crosses the line, I think, from going to where lost people are and connecting with them to... I enjoy doing the same things that they do, so I'm just going to do all the same things that they do. So that's the challenge. That's the challenge. So, um, when we work on rewording this paragraph, I think some of the key ideas are 
the tension between don't love the world and the things that are in the world, but take the gospel to the world. There's also the tension of holiness is not measured only by externals, but externals can reflect what's in our hearts, and so on and so forth. So I think those are some of the key ideas from this paragraph. Right. 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 Any for we need some references to first John. Yeah. Yeah. A lot of, a lot of sure. Uh was it two fifteen to seventeen, I think? Right. Um, so we have to make that separation that we are in the world but not of it. In the world, not of it. Uh, one other thought about holiness, going back to the first paragraph. Uh, rightly or wrongly, I think some people have emphasized the put off, put on as being strictly about habits like outward actions. But I think the, the stealing one illustrates this really well. Don't steal any longer, but instead work so that you may give. So if you arrive at that point where I'm not stealing, but now I'm working so that I can give, it's not just your outward action that's changed. It's also your attitude. Instead of saying, what can I get? It's what can I give? That's a difference in attitude, thinking, all those sorts of things. So. Um, there's another really helpful book that I hope to maybe look at some of down the road, and that is, it's called The Dynamic Heart in Daily Life by a guy named Jeremy Pierre. He teaches counseling down at Southern Seminary, and essentially in there, his argument would be that God is seeking to transform not just what we do, but also what we think, and also what we love, desire, choose, you know, all those sorts of things. And so, transforming our lives is not just a matter of I do the right stuff in front of everybody because that's the problem we've run into sometimes right we've had people who've grown up in church and they did the right stuff for a lot of years and then they got out on their own and now they're not doing the right stuff anymore why because their thinking and their hearts didn't actually change just their outward actions so um, that's something else to consider so as we get a little closer to the end of our time. Perseverance of the saints sort of bridges the gap between daily sanctification and where does it all end up, right? What's that? Right, glorification. Um, so, uh, we believe that such are only real believers as endure unto the end that their persevering attachment to Christ is the grand mark which distinguishes them from superficial professors, not academically, but people professing Christ, that a special providence watches over their welfare and that they are kept by the power of God through faith unto salvation. I like the, the heaviness of that paragraph, but I do think we probably could make it a little bit more clear. So what are some of the key points from this? If you don't keep following Christ to the end, you're not actually following Christ. This would be 1 John, I think 2.19 is the one where it says they went out from us because they weren't of us. So that would be a great one to keep in there. Any other thoughts about uh, this paragraph? 
1 John 2, yeah, 1 John 2.19. So that's an important one to leave in there. How does, uh, yes, Norma. Uh, I think so. Um, was there a particular reference that you had in mind connected with that, or? Yeah. Um, we made particulars of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that's in the world through lust, right? I will have to look that reference up, because I'm not sure right offhand, so. But yeah, I mean, I think that would be a great F reference to add somewhere in here with this. Um, so the special providence watches over their welfare. For me, that's Philippians 1.6. He who began a good work in you will continue it. Um, uh, kept by the power of God, Romans 8.30. Basically, if God has started this work in you, he's not going to stop until it's done. And then... Um, I think it would also be helpful. So there's warning passages in Hebrews. In Hebrews 2, 6, and 10, I believe. And they basically say, if you say that you follow God and then you turn away from following God, you're lost eternally. I mean, that's the basic gist of them. So here's the question. Are they hypothetical? Are they actual? What do they mean? And I think probably one of the best understandings of them would be they are part of what God uses to keep us on the right track because those who genuinely belong to God will heed those warnings and those who don't are going to disregard them. So if someone says, there is no forgiveness for the one who keeps on sinning willfully after he's received Christ, I mean, that should soberly, like, or stop us in our tracks and say, all right, this is serious business. And if we belong to God, it will. And if we don't, somebody will be like, whatever. And uh, so I think that those are, are useful in, uh, in thinking through those. So I think we'd sort of uh, combine these three paragraphs, make them a little bit shorter, but still keep a lot of these important concepts. So maybe it'll be good. Yeah, I think that could be a good reference, too. All right, let's go ahead and, uh, and wrap up there, and then we will head into the service here in a few minutes. Lord, we thank you for this opportunity to look at these truths together. We pray that we would use them wisely, not just see them as facts or verses that pop into our minds, but that would actually transform our lives. Lord, we pray that you be honored in all these things. In Christ's name, amen.